Hello, Discernibillions. Welcome to a one of my favorite types of discussions. This is where I get to talk to someone who is deep into a topic, into the weeds, is very expert in it, and me not so much so. But I get to act as that bridge, and vicariously, you get to explore this concept through me. So hopefully, my questions, which I haven't planned yet, will be good ones. Today, I'm joined by Chris Bora. Chris Bora is from the United States, an entrepreneur, much like myself, who started a number of companies, and his background's in engineering. So he makes robots, I guess, that are going to take over the world. I don't know. We're about to find out. <laughs> but I came across him because of his book called The Ethics of Anarcho-Capitalism. And I know these are some big, scary words for us Australians, but we've been through some extraordinary times. And I think it's time we uh, start to think about how life, society, government, economies, the whole lot, uh, there are other ways to think about it besides what they tell us on Channel 7, 9, and 10. Uh, welcome to the show, Chris. Hey, great to be with you. Chris, I'm very excited to talk to you because uh, it's a largely Australian audience, a couple of hundred thousand people, but we, I, I don't know if you know much about Australia, but we really have like a an allergy to the United States freedom. I don't, but Australians in general, they're all about freedom. And even the word anarchy is used as a big, uh, uh, like it's a, it's a derogatory word. Hmm. Uh, I've been to Australia once actually, and I really enjoyed it. Uh, Sydney, Melbourne, and Cairns. Um, I, I thought it was lovely. I uh, didn't talk much politics while I was there, but the nature and everything else was beautiful. How did you find the people? Very nice. Um, everyone was very hospitable. Um, yeah, I, me- I remember having a nice conversation with a man on the side of the road who pulled over because we were we both swerved to avoid a koala that was running across the road and yeah it was just we had a little chat out in the uh, out in the wilderness and it was great so before we get into some of the more difficult topics just a could you maybe give me an understanding of how i know you weren't here for very long but to frame our discussion how do you think australians think from what you saw compared to americans because just at the <laughs> basic citizen civilian level i find us to be very different creatures I really couldn't say. Um, you know, most of my discussions were kind of just cordial, how's the weather kind of stuff. Didn't really get deep into politics. Um, you know, I've traveled many places in the world and every culture is different. Every culture thinks differently. People from different countries all have different worldviews. So I'm not, I wouldn't be surprised if Australians had a very different way of thinking about the world, politics and government, but I'm not really an expert on that. Do you know much about Canadians' uh, thought <laughs> processes? Because we're very similar to that. Okay. One of my best friends is a Canadian. Um, and, you know, came to the U.S. and lives here now. But um, yeah, he great guy. I like him a lot. Uh, has some allergies to certain things that are considered American, uh, especially guns and things like that. Mm. Um, so if Australians are like that, I could see some some points of friction. Well, let's go into uh, this kind of allergy against freedom, anarchy, libertarian, even libertarianism. Can you please start by maybe defining some terms? We're going to dive sure. deep into da- Danger Island in, into your book, I'm sure. But what what is what is anarchy? What is capitalism? What is libertarianism? Uh, sure. Um, <clears throat> depends who you ask. Uh, I think if you ask an anarcho-capitalist or a libertarian what anarchy is, it just means the absence of government. So if there's no government controlling people's lives or taking taxes, then that's anarchy. Um, there's another brand of anarchist that thinks that in addition to getting rid of government, you have to get rid of bosses like corporations and companies, but anarcho-capitalists are okay with voluntary relationships between employers and employees. Uh, it's just the involuntary relationship between governments and people that anarcho-capitalists don't like. Uh, libertarianism is an ethical system that says um, you shouldn't cause conflict. So it advocates for peaceful cooperation between all people, and we can get into the nitty-gritty of exactly how that works if you like. But in general, it tries to uh, encourage people not to commit what we think of as crimes. So don't steal, don't murder, don't rape, that sort of thing, um, which is easy in theory, but can be difficult in practice when there are things, certain crimes that become normalized in society. So how is that different to what we have now in like a Canadian or Australian or UK kind of nanny state approach where what you've just described, Lieutenant, don't hurt other people? Because you just described something that people would say, that's what we have now. Um, well, that's how people are expected to treat each other and you know, your neighbors, don't hurt your neighbors and things. But um, 
for some reason, people think it's okay to uh, get the government to hurt people for them. So if you were a big business or farmer or something, um, you might get the government to take money from other people to subsidize you and your business. And mm. you know, if, if you just go and rob a, a bank, that's called concerted theft. But if you get the government nice. to do you, it's a subsidy. But from an ethical perspective, <laughs> there's no real difference. Um, so libertarians kind of try to be consistent across the board about applying the rules to everybody. So what do you mean by an ethical perspective, there's no difference? What's the difference between a government subsidy and me rubbing a bank? Why is why is that ethically the same in your view? Um, from a libertarian perspective, in both cases, you have this um, involuntary interaction. So the, the people who are doing it are causing a conflict. Um, in order to subsidize somebody, you've got to take money from somebody else. And that mm. person didn't donate the money. It's not like a charity. Money was taken from them by force mm. or the threat of jail or something like that. In the same way that you can rob a bank without actually killing somebody uh, just by waving a gun around and threatening them. So um, some people say tax, some libertarians say taxation is theft. Um, some people say it's extortion. Uh, in either case, it's it's unethical from a libertarian perspective. Okay, this is a really interesting idea. I know that might seem quite basic to you, but in Australia, that's very, very odd. So, if that's if that's the case, I, I tend to agree with that view. But if if that's the case, then how do you define ethics? Uh, you know, you said it's it's unethical to take from someone, and yet somehow in in Canada, UK, Australia, we believe it is righteous and good to take from someone who has a lot and give it to someone who doesn't have much. Where do you think that ethics comes from and how do you define ethics? Yeah, there are many different ethical systems and you can pick whichever one you like based on your own moral system. Um, but I think um, some people think it's okay to do something that's unethical if it has a good outcome. Mm -hmm. So you might say it's okay to rob a bank if you're paying for medicine for your sick grandmother. Maybe that's something you're okay with. Um, but from a libertarian perspective, um, there's only one rule and that's don't cause conflicts. So don't commit crimes essentially. Um, so you can't, you can't do something evil or unethical to get a good outcome. Um, but that's really something that's been normalized by um, governments and other ruling bodies throughout history. You know, they, sort of justify their existence by doing good things. And governments do bad things, but they also do good things. And they point to the good things, and they say, look at all the great things we're doing. This justifies taxes, regulations, wars, and any other kind of unethical thing that politicians want to do. So this, I guess, brings you brings us into anarcho-capitalism. What is, uh, you've described what anarchy is, what libertarianism is. Maybe, can you tell me what you think capitalism is, and then we can explore anarcho-capitalism? <clears throat> Uh, sure. Capitalism is essentially just um, a way of organizing society such that the people who get stuff, property, are the, um, the ones who either make it or trade for it or are gifted it. So there are certain rules. It's called the private property system. But if you follow that system, then, you know, basically the people who are doing the work or are the ones who decide how things are used. And there are many other different ways of distributing property or assigning ownership of things uh, in a monarchy the king owns everything and decides who gets to use what in socialism or communism the party decides or everybody owns everything but it ends up being an oligarchy um, so capitalism is a more distributed uh, free market type system where uh, there are a few simple rules and they apply to everybody do you feel that um we're still living in something like that i'm just watching what's going on over there with your stupid inflation reduction act and i'm seeing the <laughs> the amount somebody's getting rich from that mate somebody's getting so rich from that act for sure uh is that capitalism no um it's a very mixed society over here in the u.s um and many philosophers have asked themselves you know what distinguishes a capitalist society from one that's more, more socialist or communist uh, Ludwig von Mises, who was one of the best economists of the previous century, said, as long as you have a functioning stock market, you're essentially a capitalist society. But once the government starts taking up companies and controlling them directly, then you don't. Um, 
And there's still a little wiggle room to argue whether we have that in the U.S. since there's a lot of manipulation of what's going on with companies from the government. Um, mm. But I think, yeah, it's a, it's a mixed bag over here. Not sure about over there in Australia. Mm. You're funny. You've raised an important thing I haven't thought of, the monarchy idea. We actually are technically still mostly owned by the Queen in many ways. So, yeah. Um, yeah, we're a bit of a mixed bag. So what do, what do you make of, sorry, I'm a bit all over the place, but I'm just fascinated by some of the things you raised. What do you think of in capitalism, this idea that if we take away the government control for a moment and we have a capitalist system, what do you make of this kind of elite versus the rest of us, this, this unequal distribution of wealth and power, which is often achieved through crony capitalism and so on. But if you removed all government, which is, you know, talking about anarcho-capitalism, are we still going to end up with this this elite rest of a structure or is it going to naturally be more still um still sorry differences in outcome of course there's still going to be because there's inequality of effort there's going to be inequality of outcome i get that but there's also is it going to be more equal or less equal in an anarcho capitalist system than what we have now hmm. I, I don't know for sure there would still be um people who are wealthier and richer and you call them elites in a capitalist society the difference is who becomes the elites you know, in a crony capitalist or socialist or communist society, the elites are the people who use violence to seize power and then control the reins of government because then they can funnel all the taxes to themselves or their friends. Mm. Um, they can take over businesses if they want, they can regulate. Um, in a capitalist society, the people who become the elites are the ones who create great products, build big businesses, help the most people. Um, or um just do great things for society and people come to revere them um so it's not all about business sometimes it's about being a great uh volunteer or helping out but in a cap in a capitalist society it's what you do for others that matters whereas in um, a society with a government especially a strong government it's more about who can be the most cutthroat and power hungry Mm, okay. So can you let's go to anarcho capitalism? What type of I mean, you wrote this book, The Ethics of Anarcho Capitalism. What why why did you write that before we go to Danger Island? What is your purpose here? Um well, I guess I'll first just say what I consider anarcho capitalism to be to set some context. Uh anarcho capitalism is a philosophy that tries to promote maximal freedom. And it has sort of a two-pronged approach. Um, the first thing is to minimize conflict. So if there's conflict, that limits you know, the choices people can make in their lives um, and it reduces their freedom. So if you are a slave, obviously, that's a conflict between the slave and the slave owner. And you can't really choose what you want to do every day and how you want to live your life. And to a smaller extent, that happens with lesser crimes. Like if you get mugged and someone takes your money, you can't spend it on what you want. Um, so anarcho-capitalists would really like to get rid of all crime or conflict, um, but they would also like to increase capital across society and across the whole world. And that's wealth, uh, art, music, all the things that people enjoy and allow people to live their lives the way they want. Essentially, giving people as many choices as they could possibly have in how they want to enjoy their lives. So on, on one hand, anarcho-capitalism wants to expand the range of options people have for living a good life mm -hmm. and reduce anything, um, any conflicts between people that might reduce those choices and limit freedom. Um, so why did I write the book? Um, mm -hmm. I became very interested in this idea of anarcho-capitalism <clears throat> anarcho and libertarianism when I was younger. Um, but the the way it was defined and the systems that were put in place to sort of explain it last century in the 20th century, they were good, but they it seemed like there were a few things that were wrong with it. And there were occasionally questions that couldn't be answered using um, the old fashioned terminology of property rights and the private property system. And uh, that was bad for a number of reasons. It was bad because uh, you might have a discussion with somebody and you'd explain you know, property rights and here's the outcome. They give you a hypothetical. Well, what if this happens? Mm -hmm. If you can't come up with a solid answer or you come up with an answer that's contradicts uh, everything else you said, like an inconsistent answer, 
then it really undermines the the overall goal of convincing people that we should try to achieve some sort of libertarian or anarcho-capitalist society. Um, what's worse, though, is if you've got a system that doesn't quite work right, you know, there's something wrong with the fundamental rules, then even if you achieve a libertarian society or an anarcho-capitalist society, if you use those flawed rules, you'll end up doing the exact thing that you don't want to do. You'll end up hurting people and causing conflict because your rules are not quite right. So when you apply them in the private court or private police, they'll make mistakes that end up causing conflict and being very unlibertarian. So I wanted to see if I could fix that. And that's what led to the book. Okay. So let's talk about that. So this, what you've described really is the scientific method, right? Well, the modern scientific method, empiricism, the idea of um, being able to replicate and, and test the opposite of your book, where you talk about praxeology. What, you just said something profound, though. When you say, you know, you can have absurdities result when if the rules are not well, are not good, they can be applied and can cause terrible things. Are you, if we take, for example, the last two years in the um, pandemic response, are you referring to that utilitarian empiricist mindset that has caused a lot of pain? Is that what we're talking about? I mean, that's a great example where... Um, if you don't, if you have a, a system, a moral system or an ethical system that um, is inconsistent, it could be used against you or could lead to dangerous or bad uh, outcomes, even from your own perspective. Um, so, you know, many people, people like being healthy. They want everyone to be healthy and happy. Um, but if they don't have a strong philosophical foundation for you know what's appropriate, what's an appropriate way to ensure safety and health of people in society, then people who are not well-meaning can use that against them, and uh, eventually we get outcomes that can be very bad for some people. And as we've seen with COVID and some of the the approaches that different countries and different governments took to try and deal with the the disease. Um, you know, a lot of damage was done that was very unnecessary. And, you know, it's really impossible to tell whether it was worth it in general, but for some people it was definitely not worth it because people who might've just been fine if nothing had been done were very seriously harmed because action was taken. So um, we can get into specifics of that, but um, yeah, you have to be careful about what kind of rules you live by because there can be disastrous consequences. Well, well, the the justification from governments who took a utilitarian approach was always the greatest good for the greatest number, basically. And it's look, yes, we, you know, we're causing a bit of pain over here, but overall, it's worth it. Do you see problem? Well, you, clearly, you do. You see problems with that approach. You think it's? <laughs> you just mentioned something about not having a a strong basis from which you derive your principles. Yeah, I think you use different it's, words, it's but yeah. Very, yeah, it's a very shaky foundation. Greatest good for the greatest number, but according to who, right? <clears throat> there's no, there's no definition there that everyone can agree on, um, and so it sounds nice, and people will vote for it, and they'll support politicians in that. But what is the politician going to do when you give them the power to execute on the greatest good for the greatest number? Um, you know, there have been huge tragedies throughout history where tens, hundreds of millions of people have died. For the greater good and it's probably little consolation to the people who died and their families that you know some dictator or some government agency felt like it was the right thing to do okay so what is the alternative so when you talk about in your book about like praxeology gee this is a big topic maybe we start with wh where do you get something more solid than a utilitarian perspective where do you get a sense of ethics from that's more grounded more consistent well you start by specifying exactly what you're trying to do um, many people get confused between the idea of an ethical system and a moral system mm. i like to say that uh, a moral system tells you what is good and bad but an ethical system has a much more narrow purpose. It really only tells you how to resolve conflict. Um, so if you start with that idea, then you can say, okay, we're trying, we're just focusing on this very narrow thing. How do you resolve conflict? 
And then from there, you can define what conflict is. You can specify very precise rules about how to resolve conflict. And if you use the science of praxeology that you mentioned, uh, you can do so in an abstract way that applies to all situations. Um, so that's kind of a lot to take in, but that's the gist of it. Okay, so so if you're using praxeology, which we'll go into in a second, if if, if you're using praxeology, do you find that more uh, consistent and stable than uh, the utilitarian perspective? Do you find it's yeah? Do you find it more consistent? It is. Yeah, praxeology is a tool that allows you to create abstract rules or laws about human behavior. So instead of saying something very specific, like uh, you can't cross your neighbor's property boundary, yeah. uh, you can say something like, um, you know, don't, don't do anything, don't take any action that would uh, cause a conflict with your neighbor. And that will cover more cases than just this idea of crossing over somebody's fence or somebody's land boundary. Because there are probably cases where your neighbor doesn't mind if you come over, walk over. Maybe your kid kicks a ball over and you go yeah. pick it up and bring it back to your labor or your dog runs across and you get it. Um, so this idea of trying to create a bunch of rules that are based on you know, physical boundaries or physics um, sounds intuitively appealing. You, know, you can try and set up a, you know, a whole bunch of laws, law books that have much different rules for different scenarios. Um, but if you do that, there are always going to be corner cases that you miss. Yes. Um, um, so praxeology instead says, well, let's think about what people really care about, what they're thinking, what they're doing, and how do we create abstract rules that people can then apply to different situations. Um, so um, in the case of a neighbor, you might say, you know, don't do anything that um, is going to upset your neighbor. That's not an exact uh, sure. rule of libertarianism, but it's kind of a general idea. So then you would say, okay, let me think, what would my neighbor not want me to do? What yeah. uh, would actually make them upset and cause a conflict with my neighbor. And then from there, you can deduce whether anything you were thinking about doing might make them upset, cutting in a, cutting down a tree, blowing leaves on their lawn, whatever. So that's where praxeology comes in. It, it gives you tools and a method of thinking that's more abstract than trying to create specific rules about physical things. Mm. So if I'm angry at my neighbor because he parked, uh, if I'm in like a townhouse flat situation, his driveway's next to mine and he parks his car too far over my driveway, it's hard for me to get out of my car. Um, I could go a few different routes. I could go the uh the leak, what we just talked about, the the rules route and and say the bylaws say that you can't go beyond this line and your 16 centimeters beyond, and I'm gonna take you to strata body corporate and I'm gonna whatever. Um, or you could go the praxeological route and and, and it's just more like you're inconveniencing me, you know that's more of the crime or you could even you've just made this distinction between moral and ethics right normative ethics versus moral morality um where it might be more like it's say if it's christian it's the christian thing to do to love your neighbor as yourself and this kind of thing so what what do you take of that distinction between moral moral codes as you said and an ethical code because it seems to me from what you've just described um, praxeology to be that a lot of what people quote of say the Bible or in Islam as well, they do it with the um, Hadith in the Quran. Um, this idea of prefer others over yourself, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That sounds almost praxeological, not really religious or moral. Yeah. I think praxeology could be applied uh, very well to those kind of ideas. Um, and in general, I think morality is a broader topic and maybe a more important topic than uh, ethics because your moral system lets you decide whether a certain ethical system is good or not, whether you should adopt it. Um, so in some sense, it uh, comes before you know the ethical decision of whether you want to be a libertarian or not. Mm. Um, you know, how do you live a good life? Is it better to save money or spend money, exercise or eat junk food. That's all, those are all moral questions and ethics can't give you the answers to those. Okay. So how is, how is morality and ethics going in the U S um, there's a lot of, I mean, you've got David Harris Jr. on one side saying do this, and then you've got, I don't know, some grooming gang on the other side. It's, 
yeah, what's going on with morality and what's going on with ethics in the US as separate separate topics? Um, it's it's so heterogeneous in the US. It's hard to generalize. You know, there are certain areas where, um, you know, the moral systems of people in an area are very consistent, and they all get along and they have a great time. And um, you know, there isn't so much a need for a strong ethical system to reduce conflict because people are generally in harmony. Mm. Um, but there are so many different types of people and so many different opinions in the U.S. that you know, different regions are always in conflict. There is conflict between more rural areas and more urban areas in the U.S. Uh, north, south, east, west. You know, there's um, there's always this. Uh, divide that's created when you try to create a one-size-fits-all approach to a large body of people, you know, 300, 400 million people, you yeah. can't make one decision for everybody. And so when you've got a, a government in place and people are voting or fighting at the ballot box, people are going to get upset. And no matter which side wins, half the country is is not doing well. So I think on a small scale, uh, morally, uh, things are going okay. Um, but ethically, you know, we've got a lot. We've got many problems that we need to solve. This is fascinating to me. Okay, so so when a, a community of whatever size has a homogenous morality, you know, so you have a, a religious community that they're all on the same page, you don't necessarily need ethics so much because you're not resolving conflicts very often. There are fewer conflicts uh, typically. Um, so, you know, the ethical, your the, the necessity, the necessity of having a perfect ethical system is much less. Um, but if you really want to have an ethical system that uh, works for everyone in the country or everyone in the world, you need something that's much more precise, much more consistent. Um, otherwise, you're going to run into problems because they're just a, a huge variety of people and cultures everywhere. Um, so it just it becomes even more important. Okay. So why would you then write an ethical, a book on on the ethics of anarcho-capitalism when anarcho-capitalism is not what you have in the US, as we've been discussing, and <laughs> it's not likely to be there anytime soon, whether that's a good or bad thing, I don't know. I'd probably prefer it. But why why write a book on, on a hypothetical? Um, it's aspirational. I do think it'd be nice to have an anarcho-capitalist society somewhere so we can people could get a taste of freedom and see how it works. Um, and I do think it's not binary. If you have a system that is closer to anarcho-capitalism, then people will be more free and life will be better for those people. They'll accumulate wealth more quickly. They'll be happier, healthier. Um, so in any way that people can learn about anarcho-capitalism and move the world in that direction, whether it's on a large scale like a country or even a small scale like a town or state, um, I think they can do a lot of good for themselves and for their neighbors. And uh, you know, I'm hoping the book has some sort of effect like that. Okay. So looking around the world, can you tell us about any places, communities, cities, towns, countries, who are the closest to this model of anarcho-capitalism? <laughs> um, I'd say there are probably a large number of small towns around the world that are close to it. Um, you have probably heard stories about small towns that don't even bother electing a mayor or a governing body because they're just a few people and they can resolve conflicts on their own. They just don't need something like that. Um, and I think that's lovely. You know, they can um, <laughs> they can handle everything on their own, and that's great. Um, but you know, there are no real large scale societies that have adopted an anarcho-capitalist approach. There are people who are trying, and there are many libertarian groups. Um, for example, there's a group called the Free State Project in a state here in the United States called New Hampshire. Mm -hmm. And they're just trying to bring a bunch of libertarians to one area and then use the current political process to move the state in the direction of libertarianism and anarcho-capitalism. And I think that's great. Why not try it? Uh, there are other groups that say, well, it's very difficult to move a, a territory that's under a government towards anarchy, mm. especially anarcho-capitalism. Uh, so why don't we try to find an unoccupied territory, like um, a piece of land somewhere that nobody uses, mm -hmm. or a piece of the ocean and put a boat or some sort of floating platform and do what's called seasteading. So 
Mm. There are a bunch, bunch of different ideas for how to try this idea out, uh, which will win. I don't know, but it'll be fun to see. Do, do you think it's possible on a larger scale? Because when you mentioned the small town, that makes sense to me from the, uh, the, like the evolutionary biologists and these sorts of people who describe an anthropologist describe our ability to locate ourselves within a tribe maxing out around 120, well, it depends who you ask, but around 120 and beyond that you start to have commons and, and then the tragedy of the commons. And then you have just government because you just can't relate when you're part of a group of, you know, I'm in Melbourne, Australia is 5 million, 4 million people here. Can anarcho-capitalism work in a big giant? Some of these seasteading things I've seen, you know, they've got these big glimmering cities. Can it work beyond a couple of hundred people? Yes, and I think it's probably the most stable, large-scale society that you could have. Um, when you have a large society that's run by a government, there is a lot of inherent conflict. Uh, there's conflict between the government and the people who are being taxed and regulated. But there are also, there's also conflict between the different groups within that territory that want different things because they have this one-size-fits-all solution and they're fighting over what it's going to be. Um, and because of all this conflict, um, governments typically don't last very long, you know, a couple hundred years on average till they're overthrown or crumble or whatever. Um, but if you have an Arab capitalist society, that society is going to try and minimize conflict, uh, make life as appealing to everyone as you can. And uh, there's no real reason to fight. If you don't like something, you, know, you don't buy it or you don't interact with people. And there's no um, forced interaction between different groups or between some, you know, ruling class and everyone else. So how does that work for the commons? And then, you know, the tragedy of the commons, because some things you can't just allow, you know, if you live in a homesteading, a giant, a giant cruise ship type situation, um, seasteading, um, there are, it's necess necessarily, you're going to have conflict conflicts just by virtue of geography or virtue, so many areas have, when you've got large-scale people, like who, how do we collect the rubbish from 100,000 people? You all have different ideas on how often the rubbish should be collected. Here in Australia, it's simple, but here in Victoria, councils are trying to move us from weekly to fortnightly, and so it's a big fight. So how do you have full freedom when some issues require a conflict or a dominance of one idea over another? Yeah, a lot of that would be solved by having most places and functions that are currently controlled or owned by government privatized because you don't have this kind of problem within, for example, an, an office building that the company owns. The company just figures it out. Should it be weekly or every two weeks or whatever? Um, that's something they can figure out internally. Um, so it's really, you know, who's making the decision and why? Um, in the U.S., we have this problem all the time with uh, local education, because um, everyone's forced into the same system. And so all the parents are fighting over what should be taught at the school and how the kids should be taught, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. But if you move to a system of private education or private land ownership, um, it's really the people who own the different schools or different parks or whatever. Uh, deciding the best way to maintain them, keep them clean, and best serve the customers, whoever those might be. Okay, so having that competition. Okay. So when you describe the ethics um, of, of anarcho-capitalism, could you tell us um, a bit more deeply, specifically on what that would look like, this pra praxeological approach? Like what are the, some of the, the things? I haven't read all of your book yet. So what are the, some of the... Um, the things you suggest in there that you need to have in such a society? I think an anarcho-capitalist society would not look too different to most people than today's society, uh, from today's society. Most people would still have their jobs. They would have things they like to do, sports, watch TV, whatever, go to restaurants. Um, just a few key things would change. Uh, you know, there's no government which means all the services that are provided by government go away. All the bad things the government does also go away, which is nice. Um, so if you're not a fan of war, like most libertarians, that's great. That's just pure benefit. Um, but what about public parks or uh, the mail? Who's going to, yeah, who's going to deliver the mail, right? Yeah. <clears throat> um, but 
Uh, one thing about free market is if somebody wants, if people want things, then entrepreneurs will come along and they'll figure out ways to deliver it. So mm-hmm. private mail delivery companies will pop up or, you know, existing companies like FedEx and UPS uh, will get into the business of de- delivering uh, mail. Uh, and there are other common objections to a libertarian society, like who will build the roads? Um, mm-hmm. And again, um, private companies or private individuals will figure out how to do that. Uh, we already have many private roads in the U.S. I don't know how it is in Australia, but really. it's very common for um, companies to build highways or small roads and then maintain them for, you know, either by charging tolls for people to use the roads or by charging businesses who the roads get customers to, things like that. So, you know, I don't know exactly how it would work in any particular question, but, you know, people, when there's a, when there's a need, you know, necessity is the mother of invention and people will figure it out. And how do you come up with the ethical principles in such a society? Like who gets to decide that? Because I guess what you've described comes from your own worldview and your own, whatever your, whether you have a faith or not, but your own sort of sense of values, your own value structure. So how is it only going to be suitable to people of a similar mentality? Um, I think everyone will like it because the kind of society that would emerge from libertarian ethical system being applied in the private courts and private police mm. would be this, you know, wealth maximizing, freedom maximizing type society where as much as possible as possible, people are happy and living their lives, their best lives. Um, that said, you know, would it would it magically overnight turn out that you, know, you can just say, here are the rules, we're all going to follow them? Probably not. Um, probably different societies would adopt rule sets that are more or less libertarian, closer or further away from the ideal. And the ones that are closer will find out that, hey, we are prospering more than the other societies. And this is happening today. We can look at countries that are further from libertarianism that have embraced communism or some brand of socialism. Most of them are not doing so hot. Or if they're not doing hot now, just wait 10 or 20 years and they'll be having a lot of problems. Including China? China? Like China is one of those countries that you just mentioned. Yeah, it's not binary. Um, So uh, the more any particular country, including China, moves towards a communist or socialist way of organizing society, the poorer they will be and the more conflict they will be. So... um, Back in its heyday, the uh, the Soviet Union was praised by people around the world because they thought they've got science, they've got everything seems to be going great. And you know, for a while, you can consume your capital, you can consume your wealth and have a big party and everything seems great. Um, but eventually you run out of other people's money and society starts to suffer. People realize how poor they are. Um, and that's when you get revolutions and crazy things happening. So... Yeah, I think uh, in, our, in a hypothetical where people are trying out libertarian ideas and there are different areas that are experimenting, the ones that are more libertarian will do better. People will see that and eventually people will move more and more in that direction. Yeah, if anyone doesn't remember Bernie and friends pointing to Venezuela and how wonderful it was there for a number of years. <laughs> yeah, um, so when things are going great in a socialist or communist country, people pointed out as a great example. And then um, when things crash and burn it, they changed their tune and it was not real socialism or not real communism. Yeah. Uh, I wish we had the power to just redefine terms like that. Hey, so can, <laughs> can we talk about the uh, uh, pr- um, likelihood that any of this would take off? If you look around the world, right, what are you seeing? Are you seeing an increased appetite for this? Or um, as I said, you know, we talked about are, are any places doing it? And you said maybe some small regional towns are doing this kind of thing. Or is, is the AOC Bernie Sanders movement really seems to be picking up a lot of steam? I don't know how much of it's real, how much of it's Twitter echo chamber type and mainstream media stuff. Mm-hmm. What, what do you sense is going on in the world on this? From a purely anarcho-capitalist perspective, things are booming. Um, if you look at how many anarcho-capitalists there were 100 years ago, it was essentially zero. And now there are hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of us. <clears throat> um largely due to you know the internet and the ease in which ideas can be spread and can be evaluated against other ideas. Um, and 
ease in which historical things can be uh, exposed and um, it's easy to kind of highlight you know, mistakes that are made in different parts of the world. Um, but also entrepreneurs are figuring out ways to get around these behemoth governments. So for example, um, the rise of cryptocurrency has been a huge boon for anarcho-capitalism mm. because you know it's a it's a monetary system without a state, without a state control, which makes it better than any sort of fiat currency you could ask for. Mm. And um, it wasn't really ethics that brought people, many people, into anarcho-capitalism. It was this self-interest, like oh, I can make a lot of money by getting into cryptocurrency. And then once they realize this, like. Uh, private money is better than government money. Then the wheels start clicking. They start reading a little bit and they're like, maybe this could work for other parts of society. Maybe we could privately produce roads and deliver mail and all this other stuff. So um, I really think it's it's been good, um, but it hasn't been universally good. You know, different parts of the world are progressing or moving more towards socialism. Uh, even different parts of the US are moving in the wrong direction. So I'm not... Uh, 100% optimistic, but uh, in general, I'm feeling pretty good. And how do you how do you get there though? Because it seems like a paradox, uh, chicken and egg type thing. You can't expect people to get into government in order to destroy government. You know what I'm saying? How does that work? It is a hard question, um, and. You know, I don't know the answer, but I'd say just try everything until something works. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm less, I'm, I'm not very um, enthusiastic about the political approach. Mm-hmm. Um, there are just too many entrenched interests in governments. Um, it's not like we elect a dictator and then he can do whatever he wants. He or she can do whatever he wants. Typically, you elect somebody, but then they're part of a, a group of people who make decisions or they have limited authority and you get total resistance and opposition from the, you know, existing bureaucracy that uh, every government has. So, you know, I don't, I'm not looking for some political savior to come in and, you know, sweep the country or any particular country and make things right. Um, Okay, then our savior shall be Michael Malice. It shall be a cultural war. (laughs) I think Malice is doing much more than any political candidate has, uh, excepting perhaps Ron Paul, who Mm. I think... um, spread the message of liberty very effectively in his time. Um, yeah, cultural war, Malice's approach of a cultural war, I think, is very good. Um, if you can convince a strong minority of people that a certain position is correct, they can really change the composition of society and um, open up an opportunity for people who want to try libertarian ideas to actually do so. So, um you know, will it happen in the U.S.? Will it happen in some remote part of the world that uh, we don't know about? I mean, people are trying it. There are people who are looking for plots of land that are unowned by governments and creating, trying to create new countries, and maybe that'll work. I don't know. Maybe we can get convinced or trick some government into creating a special economic zone where there's a little bit of freedom, kind of like Hong Kong. Was. Um, Hong Kong was. Yes. Like Hong Kong was, yeah. <laughs> I stand corrected. <laughs> no, um, and just try and try out these ideas and see how it goes. Um, and I know there are certain people who are creating companies to try and do that um, in South America, I think. You just convince some country, like, mm. hey, let us try this. Give us some land and we'll see how it goes. And that could certainly work, but, you know, TBD. Uh, or it might be more distributed than that. You know, if, if crypto really takes over the world and um, becomes the new normal, governments are going to shrink dramatically because their ability to tax is going to be greatly diminished. When they lose the funds, they're going to have to fire their armies of bureaucrats. Um, They're going to have to cut back on services. And people are going to come up with private solutions to uh, this huge vacuum of power and um, the services that are no longer being provided. So... Uh, they're going to they're going to fight so hard though, Chris. I mean, it's a it's their their survival <laughs> on the their their very survival at stake. They're going to fight like you would not believe to prevent that. Yeah, I just I don't I think government is big and dumb and slow, and they really can't win in the end. They might be able to fight and cause a lot of damage in the short term, but in the long term, there's no way that they can beat the creative power of 
tens of thousands of people who are working on these different technologies. And it's not just crypto. And people are working on um, new technologies for encrypted communication. They're working on new systems for providing services to people at the click of a button. Mm. You know, eventually, the modern, you know, the average person might just say, like, what, what do I need government for when my anything I want on my phone, I can just click and I pay some millibits of uh, Bitcoin and I get it. You know, some self-driving car picks me up, takes me anonymous, anonymously somewhere. I get some anonymous food and, um, you know, those people are totally off of the government system. So uh, don't quote me on that, and, but it could happen. Yeah, no, it's an exciting idea. But hey, what about the, let's explore that for a minute. So some of the fears of that would be it's undemocratic, right? So if Amazon runs the world <clears throat> or, who you know, these big players, which are outside of government, Google, whatever, in a sense that's democratized because you have choice, a sense of choice, I guess. Um, you can't really go anywhere else besides Twitter and Facebook and whatever, but um, you don't have a direct input into how they control those companies, like Twitter, you know, squashing us all. First, let me say democracy is kind of a dirty word for anarchists and libertarians. Um it's not like a it's not like a positive idea for us that um, a bunch of people can vote on something and then half of the people are happy with the outcome and half are not. It's mm -hmm. it seems like kind of a dumb system for making any kind of decision for a large group of people. Um, but when you're comparing the power dynamics of um, you know having a few choices for different social media companies or which funds do you purchase or whatever. Versus the power dynamics of I get a vote and then, you know, maybe the person I vote for wins or loses. And even if they win, maybe they do what they said or they don't. Mm. I think you're probably better off in the former situation than the latter. Because um, mm. you always have the choice to walk away from a private company and come up with your own solution or just ignore them. But you can't ignore the government. They're always going to come for you. Yes, especially now that your Inflation Reduction Act has doubled the number of IRS agents. Hey, did you see the video <laughs> of IRS CID agent recruits um, being shown with fake guns how to go and arrest people? Have you seen that video? I have not, but that is kind of terrifying. All right. <laughs> I'll, I'll insert it now here in post so you can all watch it. Can you please turn around? Hands up. 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 H
serious. I'm, I'm concerned about, I guess, some of the fears people might have in such a system as what you describe in anarcho-capitalism when you, there's some dystopian movies where the whole world is run by corporations, you know, like The Fifth Element mm-hmm. and, and, and others. I can't recall if The Fifth Element was about. Yeah, it was the Zorg Corporation. Uh, you, have you heard of Ring Nation? Amazon is mm-hmm. doing this new show oh, called Ring right. Nation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So Amazon purchased Ring in 2018 for some ungodly amount of money, which is you know everyone's uh, smart doorbells, and and they and they have partnerships with police departments over 400 in the United States, where you get a rebate if you allow access, you register your Ring with the police department, which for them for now is voluntary, but you know who knows what where that goes. But the idea being that people can catch police can catch criminals and so on a lot easier if they have access to this network of surveillance cameras on everyone's front door now the thing i'm find weird about this is if the government came out and said we're going to roll out this mass cctv thing across everywhere you'd have this political blowback but amazon is able to push it out through kind of what you're describing right an anarcho-capitalist system they're able to kind of trick people i know you say people have choice but when you've got incentives like that and when you've got propaganda coming out like this show, um, Ring Nation, which is like America's Funniest Home Video Show, it just feels a bit <laughs> manipulative. And they're able to do some scary dystopian stuff, these private corporations. Yeah. Uh, I'll just mention two things. One is just because a company is private doesn't mean they're the good guys. Uh, there are plenty of private companies that do terrible things, uh, unethical things, unlibertarian things, just like there are private criminals, you know, they might not be part of the government, but they can still go rob a bank or murder somebody. Um, Second, uh, in a society where there's no government, it might actually be a good thing for private companies to set up these surveillance networks um, because people can opt into them and then private police can use it to catch criminals. What bothers me most about the surveillance is what you said at the beginning, you know, the government police are the ones you know, getting the information and um, you know, are they going to use that to catch criminals or are they going to use it to protect the government? Because mm-hmm. government police work for the government. They don't work for us. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes they're enforcing laws or doing things that you, know, you don't want them to do. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's this, uh, this struggle and this conflict that exists in a society where there is a state, which is why anarchy is a necessary part of a, an anarcho-capitalist uh, society. That's a really good point, yeah, because if you had a status capitalist society, which is, I guess, what we have uh, and what we're going to, the ring thing scares me. But if it wasn't, if it was anarcho-capitalist, yes, that's that's a lot less scary. Yeah. All right. Uh, so with with uh, the this rollout of things like ring, I've got to ask you about your robotics background because <laughs> are, you, are you not creating... Um, Maybe tell us some of the things that you've created, but with your companies, are you not ushering in the, what's that black, you've seen Black Mirror, yes, the the series? Yeah, yeah. You know, some of those dystopian series, like the dog that chases you down and kills you and all this kind of thing. Yeah, Is that not yeah, your fault? That. Yeah. <laughs> Is it my fault? Um, not yet. Um, <laughs> I think I think the, uh, the fear of robots, a robot apocalypse or robots taking over is a little far-fetched. Um, yeah, even humans couldn't take it. It's very difficult for a human to take over the world. And humans are much more intelligent and dynamic than robots. Um, you might be able to create some killer robot right now that can shoot guns and run around and be scary. But robots can't create the infrastructure to maintain robots and give it more fuel and repair it and create more bullets and things like that. So, you know, uh, I'm not worried about a robot apocalypse. What you sh- what maybe people should worry about is government getting robots because right now the government has police and the government police are largely incompetent and doing bad things, but they're at least have a little bit of little spark of humanity. Many of them, you know, are good people. Um, but uh, if the government has a, a robot army, <laughs> then there's this buffer is gone. Right. And they could just be like, well, we heard that this person is um, spreading anarchist ideas on his uh, platform online. So mm-hmm. we're going to send some robots to his house and take care of him. And 
you know, it's it's the combination of technology and government that is scary, not technology on itself, on, on its own. Yeah, because it does feel like a competition to in the media to say this is terrible, this is scary, but they never say let's squash the government control side. It's always the capitalist or the technological side. They say it's gone too far, we need to regulate it. And you just get this ever-growing state system. Right, and that's always the solution from a government perspective. If there's anything that they don't control, then let's scare people and then let uh, convince people to give us more power so that we have more ability to regulate what's going on, control things. And that's how we end up with communication systems that are totally tapped by our spy agencies. That's how we have you know large bureaucratic organizations that are essentially manufacturing terrorism around the world uh, to justify their own existence, running drugs. You know, the drug trade is has been historically largely run by governments. Um, so it's something that happens over and over. And I think you're 100% right that if people were to realize uh, the problem is coming from the state, they'd be more inclined to ideas like anarchy. Have you seen uh, that news report where there was some sting in the US, some drug sting, and it was some government agency undercover buying the drugs and some government agency undercover selling the drugs. <laughs> and it was just agencies doing stings on yeah. agencies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, gr- great use of tax dollars. Um, so, yeah, it's sad but true. And I think people should realize that that kind of thing happens all the time, um, which is, in one sense, discouraging because, um, you know, the government is pulling all these kind of shenanigans. But in another sense, it's encouraging because government's so incompetent that, you know, maybe we shouldn't be too concerned about this, uh, you know, fighting them in different fronts because they're just so bad at everything. It's hard to see how we couldn't win in the long run. Did you have vaccination mandates in, uh, you're in Florida, yeah? Yeah. You- uh, in Florida, no, there were no mandates. And in many parts of Florida, people just sort of ignored what was going on. Um, um so it was it was interesting how the different cultures around the US uh reacted to the covid um hysteria and um how to see the uh the results the epidemiological results uh, around different states where people behave differently um so you know I'm not a epidemiologist I don't know exactly how things turned out but with, with the yeah, reason why Florida seems fine, we're we're still here, we're still kicking. <laughs> we have similar results to LA, which is startling. But the reason why I raise that is not to get us into trouble for trying to be epidemiologists; is to raise the idea of um, mandates, government control. In uh, yeah. in Australia, there was this um, this group. We don't know who they were. They're kind of an anonymous hacking type group, uh, and they they were so fast in coming out with uh, fake vaccine certificate generators just apps that looked and behaved exactly the same they just didn't report to the government (laughs) it looked the same you enter in detail check-in apps and every time the government squashed them they they were so fast in moving platforms popping up again different url the word gets out and there was just so much i you know i know it's illegal but i was just so proud of them in the way that they even whether whether i agreed with um, vaccines or not. I was just proud of the way that the private, it's not even a market, is it? Just that individual people could outsmart the government so resoundly. I was really proud of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. Um, and that's why having a good sense of ethics is important because the ethical thing to do and the legal thing to do are not always the same thing. Because mm-hmm. when the government says it's illegal to do the right thing, uh, sometimes doing the right thing makes you an outlaw. So uh, if you've got a good sense of ethics or a good moral system, maybe it's easier to uh, to see opportunities like that. Um, and I'm glad that there are many people in Australia who are able to make the right decision and then have the guts to, to implement it. Yeah, you might. It, it's funny at the end of their webpage, it, they were, it was a Christian group, right? Because at the end of the, it had all these fake check-in generators and stuff. And then down there, it always says something like, um, you know, what, what they're doing to you is immoral. All praise to our King Jesus Christ and God bless you all. Something like that. It's like, man, these guys yeah. are not just angry anarchist type, the, the, the stereotype anarchist, angry, pitchfork burning, hateful people on the stereotype. They were these loving Christian people like, hey, morally, this is wrong. We're making a stand. Here's a fake Vax passport generator for you. It's very unique. Yeah. 
there's probably people, you know, you just see every day at the store or around your neighborhood, just regular guys and gals um, who knew how to program and made a difference. So it's a really heart heartwarming story. Although I'm, I'm sure there are people who think it's terrible that they did something like that. Yeah, the majority of Australians probably think that, but screw them. I'm, I'm sick of it. I want to stand up for what I think is right, regardless. <laughs> hey, uh, with um, let me end up this interview and asking you about the cultural side of anarchism and anarcho-capitalism. Mm. So does Michael Malice have a TikTok? Because that's where we need him. We need him infecting the minds of younger generations. <laughs> and, and dancing. We obviously needed him dancing on TikTok. Uh, I'll, I'll let him know you think so. Um, I, I, I'm not on TikTok, TikTok, so I'm not sure if he does, but... I'll I'll follow up. What's he What's he like as a person? Malice. Malice is great. Um, you know, he's just got a great uh, perspective on things. He spends a lot of time reading history, keeping abreast of what's going on, and um, he's a rock solid anarchist. So, in everything he looks at, he's got the perspective that lets him see who are the real good guys and who are the, the real bad guys. You know, is someone behaving ethically or unethically? And even within libertarian circles, there are disagreements about what's the right thing to do. Um, so um, I would say it's really refreshing having somebody who has a solid theoretical foundation, but also has kind of the wit and humor to make it fun and spread the message. Um, and Michael's great in person too. You know, Many people who are uh, personalities like yourself might be different in person than they are on, on camera. What's he like? Um, but Michael's hilarious in person too. And okay. he's also got that ripping wit. So uh, you'll see him in some interviews where he just shuts down the interviewer or says like, you know, explains things and tells him how it is. Same thing, same thing at a bar. Uh, in New York, we when we used to live there, uh, there was a tradition called Hop Hour. Uh, Hans Hermann Hop is a famous anarcho-capitalist. So instead of happy hour, we had Hop Hour. And he would always show up and... Um, um, it was great fun because the humor, um, the the quick tongue, and um, the consistent message was uh, always nice to have around. That's interesting to hear because I wondered if off camera he's suddenly more straight laced like I am, I guess. But on on camera, but it's, it's interesting to hear that he's just as witty outside. Uh, can I? Uh, so just one one more question on on Michael. Do you, I don't think he's ever spoken about it or if he wants anyone to know, but does he? where does he get his value set from? I've always wondered, if is there a faith behind him or is it just a sort of general secularism behind him? What, what's going on there? You know, I honestly don't know. Um, I think he's had a very unusual upbringing because you know, he's originally from Russia when he grew up and then he immigrated to the US. Um, so a lot of his worldview is based on you know, being under the thumb of governments. I think that's where a lot of his um, views came from. Also, uh, unlike a lot of younger libertarians who are kind of, uh, they grew up in the world of um, you know, Ron Paul or the Mises Institute or some of the other modern libertarian organizations, he grew up with Ayn Rand. So Randian um, outlook on life, which has been good for him because uh, a lot of Rand's messages, you know, be productive, live your best life, and um, try to do great things. And I think he is accomplishing great things. Um, but whether that's the sum total of his worldview, I don't know. I'll have to ask him. Or maybe you could ask him, have him on your show. Oh, if he ever sees my email, I'll, I'll try. Or maybe you could hook us up. <laughs> hey, so the reason why I, I raise Michael Malice so much in this interview is just to say I was one of those straight-laced, I don't know what you were back in the day, but I, I thought, a typical Australian, only a number of years ago, three, four, five years ago. And I thought anarchism was crazy and unbiblical and immoral and all this kind of stuff. And then mm -hmm. I heard the anarchist voices, the good ones, even like yourself would write a book called The Anarcho-Capitalist, Anarcho Ethics of Anarcho-Capitalism, but that didn't work. But when I saw him doing it in the way he does it, in a culturally relevant way, it made me go, oh, my goodness, he's correct. He's more correct than the other side. Yeah, and that might be why people like you and people like Malice and Tom Woods and Dave Smith are perhaps even more important than intellectuals who have written down the foundations of libertarianism and anarcho-capitalism because people usually aren't convinced by logic and words. They're convinced by 
relevant topics and humor and um, you know people that are engaging and um, you know pure trustworthy. So uh, my hats off to Malice and everyone else who's spreading the truth. Um, you know, it's it's something that's been hard to find in traditional media channels lately. So you know, I'm very encouraged by you know the flourishing of podcasts and alternative media like this. I think good test of these ideas at the end of the day, I guess it's empiricism. I know we don't like that, but, well, you don't seem <laughs> to like that. But to say, who would you rather be in a town full of, you and Malice and friends or AOC and some big government Republicans with Trump running the town? No, I think I'd rather be in your <laughs> town. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Hey, so uh, let's... Uh, Let's let's say goodbye to you. Thank you very much for being here. Um, I, I should I should do the journalist thing and say, is there is there any way you could break? So if you were to steel man the other side, how would you break your argument of anarcho capitalism? What's the biggest weakness? The the chink in the armor, the Achilles heel. The biggest weakness is that um, the ethical system depends on the moral system. And the moral system can be whatever people want. So if your moral system says it's more important to have equality of wealth, then libertarianism goes right out the window and there's no argument against it because libertarianism does not guarantee equality of wealth. It, it, it guarantees equality, ethical equality. Everyone is under the same rule set, but some people are going to be rich and some people are going to be really rich and that's okay. Um, but some people don't like that. Um, and so... There's really no counter argument to, hey, libertarianism doesn't um, make everyone equally wealthy. Libertarianism doesn't prioritize my, uh, you know, pet issue. If, if people think um, saving certain pieces of the environment is more important than curing cancer, or whatever the free market might decide is the first thing that that money should be spent on, then you know, they've gotten a perfect argument against uh, libertarianism from their perspective. That's a very good answer. So you, I ask guests this question a lot. That was, it was, a, that was a genuine, strong rebuttal against your position. Uh, if you're not on the same moral page, yes, it all falls apart. Uh, thank you very much for being here. I very much appreciate you being here. I need That's to go and I need to go and finish reading your book. If people want to purchase it, they should. It's uh, The Ethics of Anarcho-Capitalism. The link is in the description below. If they want to support us, we're not on the stupid things like Patreon. We're at locals, discernible.locals.com. If people want to follow you besides buying your book, where can they go, Chris? Uh, ChrisBorrow.com. ChrisBorrow.com. Thank you very much, sir, and uh, lovely to speak to you.